We're in um, Luke 23, verse 26 to 56. And as I said earlier, it's entitled on the program, The Crucifixion, Death and Burial of the Lord Jesus. I'd like to give it my own title, which is Love Changes Everything. Let's read it together. Luke 23, verse 26. As they led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the barren women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nurse. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if men do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it's dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also led with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him, along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others, let him save himself, if he's the Christ of God, the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was written a notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, for the sun stopped shining. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man who had not consented to their decision and action. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea, and he was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth, and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock one in which no one had yet been laid. It was preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. 
The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body had been laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. There's a very special market in Rangoon. David's been there. And it sells all things Burmese, including both uncut and cut rubies. And the uncut rubies and the cut rubies are often just loose. And you, you see, you might see a weigh scale and it's got weights in one and it's got a, a bunch of rubies in the other and they obviously come in all different sizes. And it's kind of odd, it, you don't see um, precious stones outside of their setting very often. And when you do, they're kind of pointless. Because <laughs> you, you kind of look at the ruby and you think, well, that's beautiful. Put it back in the box. I think when we come to the preciousness of the story of the crucifixion, it's a gem and it's got um, lots of different facets and the beauty of it is you decide how many facets it's got. You can look at it in so many different ways. Um, but it also has a crucial setting. And if we don't see the crucifixion in its right setting, then it bears little point. Um, we're talking about the central event in the whole of Scripture. It's not just the Old Testament prophecy pointed often to the sacrifice of the Son of God at Calvary, but the whole Old Testament narrative pointed one way or another to it. So we get to this point in the story of the, of the Lord's life, and it is central, it is crucial for us to um, spend time on it and understand it. And by God's, by the Spirit's help, enable him to, uh, or give him the freedom to teach us about the beautiful facets that there are in this central story. The story of the cross polarizes people. And we get it from um, the Apostle Paul, again, very familiar passage of scripture in 1 Corinthians 1 and 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. We preach Christ crucified, the power of God and the wisdom of God. These two extremes, foolishness and wisdom. It's um, foolishness to those who are perishing, to those who um, perhaps don't see the, the gem in its setting or only see one facet of the gem, it's foolishness. And to us who see it in its um, amazing right context with all its dramatic facets, it is the power of God and the wisdom of God. I'd like us for a few minutes to immerse ourselves in Dr. Luke's account and 
I made a little matrix in my study, tried to list all of the different steps that happened from the point of view, from the point at which Jesus was given his cross, all the way through to his death. And then along the top are the different gospels, and you see which of these are recorded in the different gospels. And it, it's quite amazing that um, you only really get a full picture if you look at all four gospels. And I'd like to let that study go a bit further and decide or try and understand why did Luke leave these bits out <laughs> and why did John focus on these bits because that's a, another study in itself. But as we will dip into the passage we've read together from Luke but we also to get a full picture need to dip in to the other accounts um, which we'll do very briefly. Last week, Ian did an excellent ministry. If you've not, um, if you weren't here or have not heard it yet, listen to it. It's um, about the trials of the Lord Jesus coming up to this point we're at today. And Ian identified five trials. The first one was um, in the high priest's court. Uh, this was straight after Gethsemane. And Ian described it as a bit of a, a kind of pre-trial where they were somehow gathering evidence, fake evidence, but gathering evidence for more formal trials. Um, then there was um, a more formal presentation to the Sanhedrin. Um, so these were the Jewish leaders and the, the teachers and lawyers, Jewish lawyers at that time. Um, then there was the trial before Pilate. And then Pilate passed into Herod and there was a trial before Herod. And then there's what Ian called the public opinion trial, uh, where Pilate presents uh, um, the Lord Jesus as the king, Jesus of Nazareth, the king. And the public opinion was, we have no king but Caesar. And uh, they shouted out, crucify him. I'd like to suggest there's a, a sixth trial and I alluded to it in my thoughts of, in the remembrance this morning. And it's a trial that was lasting 33 years. And it was God's looking on, on these events. And he's looking on the life of his son. And he's scrutinising it. Um, and there's no invention of false testimonies. There's just the raw facts of a life um, lived out 30 years in pretty much seclusion as far as we know and then three years in public and the verdict of almighty God on um, this person the Lord Jesus Christ is he's my beloved son and uh, uh, I'm just delighted with him he says it twice that we know of once at his baptism and it's interesting that that declaration was from the father to the son you are my beloved son and then he says it um, again at the Mount of Transfiguration and this time it's to those who are observing this is my beloved son uh, with whom I'm well pleased listen to him was that um, second one the um, first five trials had mixed conclusions. Um, the majority, of course, was um, guilty. 
Pilate and Herod, um, they had no reason to draw that conclusion. But the conclusion of the sixth trial is, um, to use the words of the thief on the cross, it's kind of ironic, this man has done nothing wrong. I'm trying to put the gem in its setting. Its setting is this event happened um, according to the perfect sovereign will of God. And we can't understand what happened at Calvary unless we see that this was something that God was not just allowing to happen, but was entirely in control of in every aspect of what went on. Um, and it was part of a divine plan, um, the redemption of mankind, um, a plan for forgiveness and salvation. So an interesting verse, it, it's, it's what happens when you, um, when, you re- when you read the gospel account, there's no explanation. It's, a, it's just a statement of, of facts. It's a narrative of what happened. When you get to the Acts and beyond, we start to see what evolves into a doctrine. So it's the facts um, interpreted in the context of their setting. There's a, a lovely prayer. It's the disciples' prayer in Acts chapter 4. And they're reciting to God as part of their prayer um, what they've discovered about what went on in these events. Verse 27 of Acts 4, Indeed Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. That's amazing. Um, I think it was David Woods in his ministry last week, um, or whenever that was last, he shared a, a really interesting verse. It's Genesis 50, verse 29, and it's Joseph to his brothers. And he said, you intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. You know, that, that is a key principle for us to understand, that... Um, the, in, in Joseph's story there was two intentions going on in parallel there was the evil intent of his brothers and they're culpable you know, it's, not, it's not that God just allowed them to do something they were determined in their own mind because of their evil behaviour that they wanted rid of their brother and they are accountable for that it's a sin and their intent was evil but that sin never happened without um, God um, being a part of it. I'm trying to use my, my words carefully. I'm not suggesting that God was in somehow party to sin because what he intended from it was good, but he intended it. And that verse, remember it, it's, it's uh, Genesis 50 verse 29. It's a principle that we need to apply to what happened at, at the crucifixion of the Lord. The people intended it for evil and God intended it for good. 
And we have our verse in Acts 4 that we read. Um, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand would happen. I think Pilate, Herod, uh, the Jewish leaders, they're culpable. They will um, face the one who they pierced one day and will have to account for their actions. But um, God was behind this, the sovereign um, God of all of the universe was in control of what was happening and his intention was for it to be good, of course. There's an irony in, in one of the verses that we read, verse 35, and these are the Jewish leaders and they're jeering the Lord and they say, he saved others, let him save himself if he's the Christ of God, the chosen one. We sang them, and uh, I love Gordon's hymn this morning, and I'm going to read it later. It was also on my heart to conclude this little message with himself he could not save. And they said, you know, um, come down from the cross and save yourself. He couldn't save himself, because what was going on here um, was part of God's sovereign plan of salvation, and his suffering had to happen if that plan of salvation was to be realised. I wondered, did those people know they were quoting scripture? I, I never really noticed this before, but we should read the account of um, the crucifixion in whatever gospel with two psalms, Psalm 22 and Psalm 69. They give the, uh, also the detail of um, the Lord's sufferings. Psalm 22, verse 8, it says, this is what people were saying, he trusts in the Lord, let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. The Lord did delight in him, but delivering him uh, from um, what he was going through was not on, because this was fundamental to his plan of our salvation. I mentioned uncut rubies and rubies. Even an uncut ruby in, in a setting looks rubbish. I know it's cloudy and scratched. Um, and it needs to be cut and made beautiful. I mentioned in my prayer that um, this is a bittersweet um, story that we need to immerse ourselves in, and there are bitter facets to the jewel, and there are sweet facets to the jewel. As I say, you decide in your own meditations how many facets of Calvary how many different ways of looking at its beauty that you can think of, but for our ministry, I've got four. Calvary was a demonstration of the worst of man's sin, number one. Number two, it was a demonstration of the unrestrained wrath of God. Number three, it speaks of complete satisfaction of God's righteous judgment. Number four, it's the ultimate expression of absolute love, divine love, love that changes everything. I'd just like us to consider those four things one by one and we'll, we'll just pull a little statement from Luke 23 that supports the um, contention and see, see how we can justify it. What happened at Calvary, and remember, 
men intended it for evil, God intended it for good. That's the setting. It's, it's all under the umbrella of God's infinite, um, omnipotent, all-powerful, sovereign will. The worst of man's sin. <clears throat> Verse 33 says, There they crucified him. I never seen Mel Gibson's um, film, The Passion of the Christ. I came very close. It's very odd circumstances, but I was in Iran. And um, when this was kind of in vogue, and my Iranian friends who are Muslim, um, they said, we have a real, we're out visiting customers in Iran, and, and uh, they said, we have a real treat for you tonight. So I said, oh, what's that? We're not gonna tell you. Um, so we're in a long journey, uh, maybe six hours each way in, in a car, and we get stuck in traffic on the way back. And they said, we're not gonna make it. So I said, well, what was the treat? We were gonna take you to the cinema and watch The Passion of the Christ. And I was quite shocked. This is Iran, you know, you've seen that? And they said, well, of course we have. Yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of um, up there, you know, it's everyone's seen it. So what an opportunity for me. So what did you think? I've not seen it, and I, I'm not sure I want to, but uh, and we're not going to see it now. So what do you think? And the reaction instantly was, we were right about the Jews. That's what they, they took from the sufferings of the Lord. They saw the shocking uh, treatment that an innocent man had at the hand of the Jews. And... Jews and Persians don't get on. Um, so that's what they took away. Why do the Gospels say they encapsulate all of that gruesome um, detail that Mel Gibson caught in his film? They encapsulate it in four words. The, they crucified him. There's no gore as to what happened when the nails were driven through. That's left to our imagination. Um, I think the reason is that if we just focus on the gore, then we don't get the full picture. And if we focus on the physical sufferings of the Lord and don't see the other facet, which is the sufferings of the Lord at the wrath of God, then we miss the point completely. There they crucified him. Um, it's one thing to reject the Lord Jesus Christ. It's another thing to, as they did, mock him and hurl abuse at him. It's another thing to spit in his face and to punch him in the face and say, prophesy who hit you. It's another thing to murder the Son of God. I put it to you that, that this is the pinnacle of man's wickedness. There is no more serious sin that a man can conjure up. And we talk about crucifixion and all of its gruesomeness and how this was the, the worst that the Romans could invent in terms of an agonising death. Um, but worse than that, here are men who are killing the eternal Son of God, the creator of the universe. We see at Calvary 
the worst of man's sin. Number two is the unrestrained wrath of God. It's another facet. It's a, another view of Calvary, um, another bitter view of Calvary, um, and it's what's happening from God's perspective. We were thinking of how there they crucified him was just an unbelievable understatement uh, when you think of all that's embodied in those four words. What about the wrath of God? What, what, what detail can we harvest from the accounts of the crucifixion about the wrath of God? The only thing I came up with was, and darkness came over the whole land. So the Lord was on the cross for six hours in total. After the first three, it went dark. In Luke it says the sun stopped shining. It's an amazing thing to explore. The sun, sh sun sh stops shining. There is serious darkness. I, I can only conclude that the unrestrained wrath of God is something beyond description. Something that there are no human words, no language that can get anywhere close to helping us understand what was going on. It's hidden from us. And God in his, um, in his love and wisdom and grace has kept that hidden from us. I, I think it's healthy for us to meditate on that. Very healthy to do that. Um, we'll come to a meditation on it in a second. Um, but this is a, another amazing understatement. There they crucified him. There was darkness over the whole land. And that's what was... Um, that's the time at which the unrestrained wrath of God was poured out on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, his beloved son, in whom he was well pleased. I mentioned Psalm 22 and Psalm 69 as parallel scriptures that talk prophetically about the sufferings of the Lord. Isaiah 53, it talks about the sufferings of the Lord but from the perspective of the wrath of God. I, I don't know whether you've spotted that before. It's actually new to me. Let's read it. Isaiah 53, verse 4. And we're thinking of what went on in those dark hours. And um, incidentally, Isaiah 53 doesn't just reveal to us the bitter facet in this jewel of the wrath of God. It reveals to us a lot more about the other facets too, but let's read it with our thoughts on the wrath of God poured out on his son. Psalm 53 verse 4. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. 
he was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see the offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death, and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. So another meditation point in this second facet, the unrestrained wrath of God against sin being poured out on his beloved son. After three hours, and you don't get this from Luke, but you get it from Matthew and Mark, it leads to Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That leads to, it is finished. Which leads to, back to Luke, Father, into your hands I commend my, I commit my spirit. Something that, again, it's a fresh thought to me, so I'm kind of still working on it. What happened in those three hours of darkness was God's um, unrestrained wrath against sin. And it finished. The Lord had to die. That's the rules for sin. The wages of sin is death and he was paying <coughs> the wages for sin so he had to die. But it seems to me from Luke's account that his death was um, was not wrapped up in the gore of the rest of the cru crucifixion. He had, having come through the wrath of God and having got to the point where he's crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Asking the why question, by the way, if the Lord does that, um, it's okay for us to do that sometimes too when we don't understand. What was finished? He hasn't died yet. I think the wrath of God was finished and it culminated in his death. And there's a dignity, isn't there, about him saying, Father, into your hand I commit my spirit. And he breathed his last. Again, it's fuel for meditation as we try and understand this amazing, bitter facet perspective on the sufferings of the Lord. Number three, the complete satisfaction of God's righteous justice. Um, we have it explicitly from uh, the Apostle Paul. It's interesting that sometimes we can see some, some letters, they're like a, a theological essay. Paul's letter to the Romans is a theological essay 
on um, law and grace. And in this essay, verse, chapter 3, verse 25, God presented him, that's the Lord Jesus, as a sacrifice of atonement. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had let the sins committed beforehand go unpunished. So Paul is teaching that um, up until this point, um, all of the sins that had been committed and all of the sacrifices that had happened, um, they hadn't cancelled a single one. It was um, just a demonstration of God's intent, just a shadow of this um, plan of salvation when the only eligible sacrifice came along. Um, he did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left, let those sins, the, the sins prior that had been committed prior to Calvary, um, he let them go unpunished. It's a, it's a statement that that un, um, unlimited wrath of God um, meted out on the Lord Jesus at Calvary was for past, present and future sins of all of mankind. Back to Luke, what, what evidence is there in Luke's account for this contention that God, uh, the complete satisfaction of God's righteous justice? I think it's one example is in, this, in the statement, Father, forgive them. The only basis on which the Lord Jesus could um, ask for the forgiveness of who's them? <laughs> The they crucified him. Who's they? Was it the people that were shouting, crucify him, crucify him? Was it the, the people that drove the nails into his hand? You decide. Um, Father, forgive them. Who, who is it? Who is the them? Um, the point being is that in the midst of this um, amazing um, event going on at Calvary, there is, what comes out of it is forgiveness. Um, and forgiveness can be granted because um, God's justice is satisfied through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. Another illustration from Luke 23, his response to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. It's a, a statement of salvation. And salvation happens because God's Righteous justice is satisfied. Number four, the ultimate and absolute expression of love, divine love, and love changes everything. We've been exploring what I would call the doctrine of the cross, and there can be so much more said, um, and you can say it your way, you know, that there'll be things which facets of this story that are precious to you that the Lord has made the Holy Spirit has made real to you um, I don't want to say that this complex and it is complex doctrine uh, that salvation can't be appreciated unless we understand all of these different facets um, actually I accepted the Lord Jesus as my saviour Understanding that he paid the punishment for my sin and that's all there was to it in my mind and that that's enough and it's as we mature and um, 
want to dig deeper into the richness of the sovereign God's plan that we understand more. John, let's call John's epistles his essay. And 1 John is an essay about love. 1 John 4 and 10, this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. It's another beautiful facet of this jewel that is described in Luke 23. And it's about um, the motivation for God pouring out his unrestrained wrath on the Lord Jesus is because of his love for us. Um, What about Luke? Uh, What evidence is there of God's love in the narrative that we've read? Um, I just think that, and it's where love changes everything, comes from the people went into this event and their perspective was completely changed. Um, Verse 47, the centurion, seeing what happened, praised God and said, surely this was a righteous man. I've been guilty of thinking this particular centurion was a bit of a softie and you know he he was kind of not involved in all of the other stuff. None of it. He was the guy who was tasked with the crucifixion. He was responsible for um, meeting out, making sure his team met out the worst possible judgment, punishment on this criminal. And the cross changed everything. And it's not because he understood the the theology. He just observed the the goings-on, the behaviour of the Lord Jesus Christ, what he'd said, the darkness, his cries out in prayer. And his reaction was, surely this was a righteous man. Another uh, account says, surely this was the Son of God. No, the, the message of the cross is transforming. Um, verse 48, when all the people who had gathered to witness the sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. These were the people who were mocking him and um, saying, come down from the cross if you're the son of God. And what they observed transformed their orientation completely. And yet the same expression as the um, in the, the parable that the Lord may uh, spoke of of uh, um, the Pharisee and the tax collector and his, the tax collector's prayer it says he, he smote his breast and said God be merciful to me it's a transforming experience is Calvary and um, this new facet that we're talking about it's, it's God's love and what, what these people saw is this is an innocent man this should not have happened and the orientation was completely changed Those four things for us to think about. The worst of man's sin. The unrestrained wrath of God. The complete satisfaction of God's righteous justice. The ultimate, absolute expression of love. Love changes everything. Some little things that I've missed out. I'm just going to take one minute. Simon of Cyrene. He was the... um, 
If you read Mark's account, it refers to his two sons, Alexander and Rufus. And Mark very casually says, you know, Simon, he's the father of Alexander and Rufus. So Alexander and Rufus were familiar characters in the church. I just lovely thought about Simon of Cyrene's testimony. Um, He helped carry the cross of the Lord and his family became part of the church. Interesting. The women mourners, that's a difficult scripture, as he's carrying the cross and the women are mourning for him. I assume they were professional mourners that were mourning for the other victims that, that were about to be crucified and they would do it on a daily basis. And the Lord reverses the mourning for him and says, you mourn for yourself. And uh, you know, we can try and understand what the Lord was referring to, the future event that the Lord was referring to. I just think it's a precious thought that the Lord didn't want mourning. He was on a mission. And his concern, even then, was that the women would understand what this was all about, that they would have the right perspective at some point. We didn't talk about his burial. That's part of our brief as well, Joseph of Arimathea. We read in Isaiah 53, verse 9, he was assigned a grave with the wicked and the rich in his death. It's a great prophecy. But actually, he couldn't have been buried with the wicked such that his resurrection was unquestioned. If he'd been put in a communal grave, what evidence was there? Um, because he was in a rich man's grave, there was an empty tomb that proved it. And then we could um, say a little bit about Joseph of Arimathea, the disciple who was a disciple in secret because he was afraid. whole other ministry about that. But another man whose um, life was transformed by his experience at Calvary from being a secret disciple, timid and afraid, to go in public and seeking the Lord's body from Pilate in a very public way. Let's read together um, Gordon's hymn. Himself he could not save, he on the cross must die, or mercy could not come to ruin sinners nigh. Yes, Christ, the Son of God, must bleed, that sinners might from sin be freed. Himself he could not save, for justice must be done. Our sin's full weight must fall upon the sinless one, for nothing less could God accept in payment of that fearful debt. Himself he could not save, love's stream too deeply flowed. In love himself he gave to pay the debt we owed. Obedience to his Father's will and love to him did all fulfil. Himself he could not save, and now exalted high, A prince and saviour he has saved and brought us nigh. We live in him who lives above and sing with joy his deathless love. Shall we pray?